Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. And I'm Andrew Tobias. Mary Kilpatrick is out this week. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for providing us the space and equipment to make this podcast possible. We really appreciate working with them, as always. Be sure to rate and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. We're on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, just about any podcasting app you can think of. And when you rate and subscribe to us, it helps other people find this podcast, which we really hope you want them to do. And if you have any feedback, be sure and email me. I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. So we just had an election, Andrew. Did you know that? Um, so that's why I still feel like I haven't slept that much. In light of that election, we thought it'd be fun to do something a little bit different today. So we are going to introduce our guest host for today's show, Cleveland.com data guru, Rich Exner. Rich, how's it going? Pretty good, Seth. Thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. So what we wanted to do today is just kind of break down some of the results and see what the state of play is as we move into the general election season. Uh, there's already general election ads out. It's been less than there were general election ads out basically 10 minutes after the primaries ended. But let's go ahead and stick with the primaries right now. So we had we had a few big primaries. Andrew's got some results in front of him. So if you just want to kind of run down real quick, give us some results and we'll start breaking them down. Yeah, well, not to like, you know, be too uh, chapter and verse with this or whatever, but uh, on the top of the ticket, the governor's race. The big kind of surprise, I guess, because a lot of the national coverage going into the Democratic primary was that, you know, we'll got for Dennis Kucinich, it might be close. Well, you know, Richard Cordray won 62 to 23 uh, thereabouts. So like approximately a 40 point difference. So just a squeaker. It was really, uh, really tense. Yeah, that real, night. real nail biter there. And that that has to be probably one of the more interesting plot lines of the night that we'll get into in a little bit is the real futility of the Kucinich campaign. I mean, not even winning Cuyahoga County, but. Yeah, I mean, there was that poll showing the race was tied. That, that was sort of our take was that it was at least competitive, but clearly, you know, Cordray pulled away. Freezing cold takes. <laughs> yeah, we're full of them. Um, and then the Republican race, it was, again, you know, actually, you know, going to the election night, uh, this is basically people thought it might be 10 to 20 points. I think people who said 10 points were like, well, I think it should be not that close, but Donald Trump's our president. And there's sort of like this, um, you know, residual expectation of upsets or whatever. But so Mike DeWine won 60-40, Mary Taylor, um, you know, did okay, but clearly it was a, it was a comfortable win, despite kind of how nasty the, the campaign was, you know, having the appearance of something that was pretty competitive, again, the, the outcome of the race. Well, it wasn't quite the bloodbath that the Democratic primary was. It still was not really that close. Rich, what did you see in the numbers? This is kind of your forte is looking at the numbers. What what sort of interesting things popped out to you when you looked at the numbers from Tuesday night's election? I guess I wasn't surprised by the fact that Cordray won, but maybe getting nearly a 40-point win was, was a bit of a surprise if you would ask me uh, a few weeks ago. But you guys reported uh, a couple weeks ago on the last donations, dollars brought in by each candidate and how much they were spending. And I think that kind of signaled it because I can't remember the number offhand exactly what it was, but in comparison to Cordray, Kucinich had not spent anything. So I was thinking a candidate like Kucinich uh, statewide, people hear maybe the negative things about him more than the things he wants to go out and talk about. People might remember that, you know, Cleveland defaulted and we can get a long argument about whether or discussion whether that was his fault or not. But but without having money out there and spending and telling his message, I, I think that kind of leaves, you know, the quick narrative. And maybe maybe that's what we saw as a, a candidate that, didn't have the you know the dollars spent to get a message out to to say what he wanted to say and 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 the kind of default opinion maybe maybe showed up in the polling. 
Yeah, he's that's always been kind of his weakest point is fundraising, and I guess it showed this time again. Like you said, he only raised, I, I want to say it was around $600,000. You know, that's not enough to get up on TV statewide. That's not enough to really get your message out there. I mean, he was barnstorming nonstop. He was everywhere. He was stopping in four different corners of the state every day making sure he was around everywhere, but it just wasn't enough to kind of counteract, you know, the the, the broad party support that, really did kind of back Cordray from, you know, he was sort of the endorsed candidate and everything but name only. I mean, all of the kind of party higher-ups, yeah, they really wanted Rich Cordray to be in there, but Kucinich, I guess he just, yeah, couldn't overcome it. It wasn't his time again. The thing that surprised me the most was that kind of people would ask me about Kucinich. I'd be like, yeah, he's sort of this folk hero in Cleveland. I mean, it kind of cuts both ways, but uh, he still kind of has that status of like, yeah, he might be crazy, but, you know, he's he's a fighter or whatever, you know, something along those lines. Cleveland, um, you know, turnout was kind of low, or at least, you know, we can get into that a little bit more across the state. But Cuyahoga County was one of the counties where actually turnout was slightly up. And that showed up in some of the early ballot request numbers. You could see, oh, like, you know, something's happening up in Cleveland. I bet that's probably good for Kucinich, right? Well, no, he pretty much did the same in Cuyahoga County as he did anywhere else in the state. And that kind of, you know, when his... I think the theory of his his campaign was basically like, I'll do well in Northeast Ohio. Yeah, well, run up the score. Did not happen. No, not at all. Of interest, I believe one, Rich Cordray won every county in the state, except for, I believe, Mahoning and Trumbull counties, which went to Joe Schiavone, of Fighting all people. Hey, hey, you know what? Um, who had, you know, I guess a little bit of a stronger uh, showing than most people might have thought. I mean, yeah, he only clocked in at 10%, but he only raised 800 grand over this entire election cycle compared with you know, Cordray, who raised somewhere around $2.7 million just in the primary alone. But yeah, I, I guess the question that I have been asking myself since the Tuesday primary is, is Kucinich's flame out? Is it is it done? Is it old hat? Do do Is the light not there anymore? He, he used to be known for being this kind of vigorous campaigner, and he was, you know, he got to that populist, uh, you know, sentiment and all that, and I just didn't see it. Ohio politics kind of reminds me of professional wrestling and that like if you stop paying attention for, for 20 years, like the characters are still pretty much the same. But I feel like we're kind of getting to the end of the line. I mean, you know, Mike DeWine is 71, 72, and obviously he did all right, but he's been in the game. I mean, you know, Dennis Kucinich hasn't held office for 10 years. You know, his or, you know, whatever it is, six years, uh, his race against Marcy Captor wasn't that strong. You know, his big thing for his political persona sort of in this iteration was being opposed to the Iraq war. But I mean, you know, that's old news. So I just I think that he's gotten to the point where he's kind of aging out and his relevance is obviously faded. Here, here's a fun hypothetical, though. Now, you mentioned the captor Kucinich race. If I recall correctly, the way that district was gerrymandered and divided up, it was heavily a captor district versus the Kucinich when they split things up. I'd have to go back and see what the numbers showed on that. But here you have an open house seat in the 16th. What would uh, Kucinich do in that race? If he was in that race, would would he be a legitimate candidate? Then there you're coming back to his own home turf. Uh, you wouldn't need a lot of money to get your name out there because he would be Dennis Kucinich, and he would it would be you know a, a striking issue. It's too late. He can't get into the game. But mm-hmm. I throw out that hypothetical. His, was this the wrong race for Kucinich? Yeah, running for governor. Been, I think that would have been a better play for him. There's Parma and in some of those towns down there. I think that he'd probably do pretty well. You well, know, and, relatively speaking, and he's always been good at constituent services, which is why everybody knew him, you know, hardcore up here in his district, especially on the west side, and even going to the east side because he'd go over and do some east side stuff too. So you have to imagine that if all you have to do is campaign in a single district as opposed to statewide, then you know you can make it to however many different town halls in a day, as opposed to maybe making two, three, four campaign stops if you're lucky, going around the state, going to you know Cincinnati, Columbus. Cleveland and maybe Youngstown all in a day. 
So I think, yeah, if he could, uh, if he could get back into a district that was more competitive, then maybe he could. Um, especially since that's like a West Side uh, sort of district over there. I don't know that. I don't know that he would want to. I guess I don't know. It's Dennis. He yeah, might, why, he why might would want you go back to Congress? But th- that would have been interesting. You would have had the the ultimate professional campaigner, the guy who knows everybody's name and doesn't forget it, uh, running against a guy who has never run for office before. It would have been for us. It would be interesting. Yeah, I yeah. think anything that Dennis runs for is going to be interesting, and we'll always hope that he continues to run for stuff just because he made the, the the race a lot more interesting. And remember, there is a Cleveland mayor's race coming up in a couple of years, so who knows? Watch out for that, right? Keeping the dream alive for that. <laughs> um, how about on the Republican side? Uh, did you see anything with the numbers there? Well, it's just interesting, just just by my TV viewing habits, which is usually involves fast-forwarding through commercials, but you do notice uh, uh, what ad is on or, or, or mailings that would, would show up on people's doorstep. That, that seemed like that was a lot more hotly contested on the Republican side. And, 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 it's, and in the results, it was, a, you know, what was it, 20 points. So it was a lot closer than the, uh, than the Democratic race. But when you look at the maps, and sometimes maps can be deceiving because some of the counties in Ohio have four or five people living in them, but... Even even though that race was a twenty point race, much closer than Democrat, there still were only like five counties that Taylor was able to win, and 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 two of them were these these small counties east of Cincinnati that that are historically you know that's like the Tea Tea Party hotbed of Ohio, and, and those were two of her. So overall, that kind of shows you that Dewine is known and and at least respected amongst in, among Republican voters throughout the state. He's I think he's able to make the argument that he was conservative enough in a credible way because Mary Taylor's whole campaign was a, that liberal Republican Mike DeWine. But like this is the same Mike DeWine who has said that he would sign the heartbeat bill. Um, you know, I think he's kind of sounding all the right notes on guns, even though 10 years ago he was really on the bad list for the NRA and those types of groups. So and Mike DeWine, like Rich said, I, you know, actually, I think a Columbus Dispatch headline, he was a household name was what it said or something like that. I mean. He's people know who he is. I think, you know, if you were to ask average Ohioans, you know, pick a name, which one of these do you recognize? It'd probably be him. And so, you know, clearly he did okay. And I mean, considering everything, party endorsement, just having, you know, however much more, at least more than double the money that Mary Taylor had, uh, she actually put up a pretty good fight, all things considered. I mean, a 20 point loss is a 20 point loss, of course, but. I think if you go back to November of last year when Mike DeWine and John Husted said they were teaming up, it was everyone said it's over. Like there's there's no point in running this primary anymore because it's going to be those two. And I mean, yeah, that ended up being right, but you know, she made them sweat. They spent eight million dollars against her. Right. So we were kind of we've been talking about this off air, but the, one of the really interesting storylines from election night was that in the governor's race for the Republican side, the eight hundred and twenty-seven thousand votes were cast thereabouts. And then the Democratic primary is something like 679, 700. So it's a difference of, Seth, what's the number? I believe 147,000 vote margin between the two parties. And, you know, I, I yeah, we talked about this offline. I've kind of had the feeling that that is not the greatest sign for Democrats who are looking for, uh, you know, a blue wave to come. You know, studying any of the numbers, I mean, did you see anything there? Biggest thing I saw, surprise, surprise, that... David Pepper has a different opinion on what those turnout numbers meant. That man, uh, he's in a, you know, I think you have to be an eternal optimist to be in his job, so good for him. <laughs> One thing I, I thought was interesting, though, is that uh, when you looked at the numbers, I, I do this, I don't know how relevant it is, but you know, you're trying to pull some numbers out of the out of a primary election and try to figure them out. It's, typically, I'll, I'll take a look and see, okay, did DeWine get more votes or did, um, or did Cordray get more votes in a given county? And when you look at the counties, 
where Cordray had more votes, uh, not necessarily. I guess that ties in a little bit to the turnout. It's it's coming back to the heart of what used to be some Democratic strongholds. It's a lot of the Northeast Ohio counties and the major urban counties in Ohio. So how how much can you drive those up? Uh, you know, come come general election time, or you know, since what do we have? Roughly, maybe only half the voters show up in a primary, or so. Is is that enough to be a correlation, or is it more of like a sampling? But but I thought that was interesting is that um, it, it still repeated the thing that in urban areas in the Northeast Ohio, um, Cordry looks in good shape. But if you take the total numbers, of course, uh, with a larger turnout on the Republican side, uh, if you wanted to extrapolate from those numbers, it was a good good day for DeWine looking forward anyway. I know in, in the DeWine headquarters, which was pretty much kind of like every Republican that you can imagine stopped by there at some point. There's a lot of relief. Uh, I, I know that as I've been talking to them afterwards, they kind of they were sort of expecting the worst when it comes to this kind of stuff. I mean, they've seen the same special elections with, you know, Connor Lamb and with, you know, Roy Moore and all that stuff. And so I think that they were ready for something that sort of indicated more parity, at least. So, I mean, I know that kind of some of the conversation about this has been maybe we can't draw too sweeping of conclusions from it. But I think if you look at the way Ohio has been trending, you know, kind of veering to the right, it seems, you look for stuff that almost is like offers a countervailing story. And so this would be one of those things that is an opportunity to kind of like, oh, yeah, like Democrats, you know, were able to push the numbers up or something like that. And the fact they didn't, I think just the absence of that kind of countervailing argument makes me assume kind of like my, my default stance, which is that maybe Ohio's turning red. One concern for the Republicans might be going forward, though, is that while the turnout was up over four years ago, it, it might get close to where it was eight years ago. And eight years ago in the general election, that was one of the highest turnouts for a, for a gubernatorial election, or, or, 12, or 12 years ago it was higher yet. And that's when, you know, when turnout's higher, the, the Democrats have a much better chance of winning governor, uh, governor's elections in Ohio historically. Uh, so whoever shows up to vote, the Republicans seem to do better when the turnout is lower. You know, this is just one, you know, data point that we're looking at. It's not going to be you can't make a blanket statement like, oh, this is obviously this shows the end or no, this shows one way. You know, it's one set. There's all different. And there's all kinds of time until the November election as well. But if you look at 2006, that's the last time there was an open seat in the governor's race and the split in the primary vote between the two parties, Democratic votes accounted for 46.7 percent of the votes. Republican votes counted for 46.6 percent of the votes. So pretty swingy. You look at 2010, wave year for the Republicans. Now, granted, not an open seat, but these are imperfect, you know, comparisons. Democratic votes in the primary, 41.8%. And in the Republican primary, 47.8%. Again, I don't want to say that, yes, this is this obviously proves that it's, it's going to be one way or another. But the other thing that I noticed, and I think you and I talked about this regarding just the Cleveland area and the map up there, is that there were a lot of those precincts that just weren't turning out, especially in um, you know minority neighborhoods where the Democratic Party is really going to have to build their base and activate those voters this time around. But there aren't Republican voters showing up in those neighborhoods either. I think maybe turnout was down, but but they all count the same come <laughs> come general election time if they vote. But 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 there were um, over a hundred precincts in Cuyahoga County in which there were no Republican voters or just one, uh, at least according. So, so uh, it's low. Is it going to be enough to offset it in the Republican areas? That's all I guess we got to see. But, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting going forward because like going back to what I originally said, I felt like just the general public was hearing more about the Republican race. Yeah, there were and, all the TV ads and stuff. Yeah. It was just omnipresent. So did the Republicans really know that there was a contested, or the Democrats 
the casual Democrat really know that there was much to go out there and get excited about the vote? Does that mean that they won't show up or did the Republicans come out because they felt strongly, well, we got to have the wine or we got to have Mary Taylor. And there wasn't that, um, and you know, a question on the, on the democratic side. And also remember on the Republican side, we, we had a, a contested, uh, race for the U S Senate and Democrat, you know, it was in the bag. Uh, Sherry Brown is going to, going to face a Renacy now. Yeah, that was sort of the line from David Pepper and all of them is like, look, like Republicans sunk $10 million in their race. Like the, the state party basically stayed out of this one. There was, Cordray only spent like $1 or $2 million at the most. The disparity there meant there's less mo- mobilization of voters or less engagement with your average voter and stuff like that. So I, I guess that's the, that's the sort of the other side of that one. So I guess as far as like big picture storylines go, the other thing I think that you can kind of take away from this week's election is I guess the establishment won out, you know, in, in a time where uh, I think that there's a belief that uh, pl- political parties are losing their power, that insurgent candidates have an advantage. You know, everybody is running against queer politicians. Everybody's casting the other person as the insider and all of that stuff. And in this case, the queer politician, Mike DeWine, won. And granted, he was running against another candidate that also has had a pretty long time in elected office. So it's not like there's a clear contrast there per se, but then Rich Cordray, who's held a variety of offices at various levels. And I don't know where he fell in your career politician index that you uh, came up with Seth, but he's pretty high, right? I think he was in the top 10. He might, he was definitely in the top 15. I'm pretty sure, but I think he was in the top 10. But anytime you hold like County, local, state and federal offices, like you're pretty much checking all the boxes. So, but those were basically two establishment candidates held off insurgent challengers. And, uh, you know, that's, that was, that was, it was almost surprising in the sense that the results themselves were unsurprising. It's interesting looking forward to the fall is that, uh, and what Andrew said there about, uh, the newcomers. I mean, all these, all these people have been around a long time in politics. Renacy goes back to what, the nineties and Sherry Brown to the eighties and on the Senate side. And, and then we've got DeWine and, and Cordray. And even if people didn't know who the attorney general was in Ohio before, or the, um, they, if they followed, they knew that he was tied up in this whole, uh, uh job in Washington with the consumer, uh, department. So last thought before we move on to some of the other races, what are we thinking each candidate sort of has to do here on out to kind of, you know, they have to switch from primary mode to general election mode. What does each candidate need to do? Well, I think that DeWine, his immediate challenge is going to be to kind of like regroup a little bit. I mean, um, Mary Taylor didn't win and didn't make the race particularly close, but she made it competitive. And if you looked at polling, she drove up Mike DeWine's numbers, reminding the conservative base that, oh, yeah, he did get an F rating from the NRA. And, oh, yeah, he did vote for immigration reform that saw a path to least legal residency for a bunch of undocumented immigrants and that kind of stuff. And, oh, yeah, Mike DeWine's been in office since Star Wars was first came out and all of that. So uh, she did kind of did the Democrats job for them in some reference and some degree. I mean, you know, she attacked him from the right, at least. That's not necessarily going to really change how a general election voter is going to look at him. But some of that stuff, I mean, you know, that's something that he's going to have to overcome. The money that he spent fending off the challenge is not going to be there, obviously. So he's going to have to either find money from donors or maybe dip into his own personal uh, finances some more. I think on the Democratic side with Cordray, the big thing with him is he's going to have to tap into that national fundraising network because, you know, he raised about, I think, $2.7 million, but that's just not going to be enough to sort of combat someone like Mike DeWine, who not only can raise a ton of money, but has his own money that he's willing to throw into the race. I would guess as well that he'll try to get some of those national figures. I think I would not be shocked if we start seeing some uh, Obama administration officials start coming in here to campaign for him as well. 
I would think that uh, Cordray on on the gubernatorial side needs to figure out a way to explain to Ohio people why Ohio hasn't moved forward as a state in the last, what is it, since 1990. I think it's been Republican governors all but four years. So, but that, I've never really seen that message from the Democratic Party in, in the past elections, at least strongly. And, and I would think that that's, that should be an aim for Cordray if he wants to win is to prove what's, don't run, you know, you run a little bit against the wine, but run, run against the Republican leadership. And, and can he convince people that, that Ohio is, hasn't moved forward because of, of Republicans running the governor's office to try something different? I guess it was a win for him that he made it through a primary that Dennis Kucinich was basically saying, hey, let's basically ban all guns in Ohio. And Cordray didn't really move off of his position. I mean, he maybe de-emphasized um, basically generally having a pro-Second Amendment record and stuff like that. But that's probably a win. He wins by 40 points in the primary and he has intact his, you know, his record in, in being friendly to gun owners, or at least that won't be something that he should be uh, weak on. So I think that's that's a plus for him that he managed to make it through and basically stick to his game plan. And generally speaking, at the statewide level, moderates tend to win just because of what the electorate is. And we're going to have a race basically against two moderates right now. get capital letter it's the must-have daily read for state house happenings five mornings a week cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct timely information it's perfect for people businesses and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers the governor and all of state government from breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda if you're not getting capital letter you're missing out for more information visit cleveland.com slash capital letter that's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. It seems like in the, uh, in the presidential election, a common theory is that one of the reasons that Trump ran up a victory in Ohio that had been essentially a, a lot closer state to, between the two parties is that he tapped into what used to be Democratic strongholds, uh, eastern Ohio, the old steel country, coal country, whatever, that, hey, I'm for you, well... Sherrod Brown has been saying that longer than, than Trump. So how can Renacy come in and prove that he's better for those people than the guy that's essentially been giving the Trump line on, on trade issues before Trump was a presidential candidate? Since you brought up the Senate race there, um, the real story there is obviously it was a contested primary for the Republicans. Josh Mandel was basically continuing his decade-long campaign uh, for Senate, but dropped out in January, and so it left them basically... Uh, without a really clear front runner, you know, not to recap because people I think probably generally know this at this point, but Renacy dropped out of the governor's race where he wasn't really going anywhere, dropped into the Senate race. And there was some question kind of going in. Some of the polling consistently showed a lot of people didn't really know who to vote for. You saw this as a carryover from the governor's race that people across the state, even though Renacy was spending all this money, didn't really know who he was. I think if you were to ask people to read his name, they probably still don't know how to pronounce it, which probably isn't really helpful for him. But so there was some question about maybe Mike Gibbons might might put up a pretty good number. Some people, uh, Republicans, were sort of wondering if he might win. That was sort of like the fashionable upset pick. But Renese had a pretty solid 47%. I mean, he almost cleared 50 uh, in a five-way race where, you know, things broke pretty late. So that's that's a good story for him, I think. But I, you have to wonder, it, it's got to be a little troubling when he has been running statewide for the better part of a year now. Granted, he was in the governor's race at one point, and they'll point to him 
just jumping in in January to the Senate race, but it's not like he hasn't been out there. He ran statewide commercials back in August, I believe, of last year, August or September, and still didn't have the name. I mean, he's got a presidential endorsement. He's got the party endorsement, and he's not clearing 50%. I mean, that that seems a little troubling to me. I got to think, too, that um, that Trump recording a robocall right before the election for him really helped push him over the top because things kind of closed well for him because, you know, polling, he was maybe around 25 or 30. So but I think the other big question mark with him is that the last campaign fundraising period before the election, he announced, I think the number was like three or four million dollars. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. And, you know, and then it comes out several days later when the actual report becomes available that, oh, yeah, like he lent 90 percent of that to himself. So he basically raised as much money for a Senate race as, you know, it would have been pretty good for, you know, maybe a congressional race or something like that, I guess, uh, as far as actual outside donors. So he is going to have to show that he can raise money. He, he didn't really raise money too well when he's running for governor. But I mean, he is rich and there will be more interest now that he's the clear nominee. I, I do think that outside donors are probably going to be cautious about jumping up too much into this race until they can see that he can compete. But I, I guess that is still a question mark for him. To me, I, it would seem that Ohio's continued support for Trump is going to be more important in this race than what it would be in a Senate race where you didn't have a, a longtime politician like Sherrod Brown that people are familiar with. Right. He has his own brand that's very well established. So you... If if Trump's support doesn't remain strong, it's going to be difficult, I, I would think, uh, for Renacy to overcome that. If it stays strong and they want, you know, they look at him as another Trump, then it's a different story. We we saw in other states that kind of trying to latch onto that Trump brand didn't maybe didn't necessarily work. It did here to a different degree, I would say, though. You know, some of the other states where you had kind of the wild candidates like Don Blankenships of the world over in West Virginia. I think we're going to see the president in this state quite a bit uh, campaigning for Jim Renacci. He came here three days before the primary. Uh, it was technically it was White House, you know, official business, but it ended up basically being a photo opportunity for Jim Renacci to be next to Donald Trump. Like you said, recorded that robo dial. I wouldn't be surprised if the president is here three, four times over the next, you know, up until the election cycle comes on, stumping for his guy because he seems to really covet this state and really loves this state and wants this state to stay in Republican hands. And I think he just, he sees it as one of the only opportunities for him to actually make a pickup in the Senate against Sherrod Brown. Yeah, but his his endorsement hasn't necessarily transferred a whole lot in the other cases that he's tried to make that happen. And I think that when Trump starts issuing endorsements, I think that sort of starts to make him look more like a politician, you know, because in this case, Trump basically, in my opinion, won Ohio by the strong margin he did because of his position on free trade. And I think that kind of connected with the cultural conservatism in Ohio that kind of existed before. So I think that, you know, Renacci, who has a record of, of being pro uh, these multinational inter- trade agreements that Trump basically ran against, whereas, you know, Sherrod's been a really consistent critic of that on that issue. And I think that's something that um, gives him a lot of credibility with voters, even if they don't necessarily agree with him on every particular issue that he has otherwise. So I don't think that Trump's endorsement, you know, per se is enough to make people kind of l- look past the fact that maybe uh, Sherrod Brown has a more established record on this kind of stuff. I mean, it's not that simple. People aren't one issue voters, but that's an important slice of the electorate. I love this being a podcast. I'm going to, I'm going to hold up and, and show you a map that our listeners obviously cannot see, Ooh. But, but what it is, we'll is be it, sure to put it in the post there for, we go. for this episode. So <laughs> but, be sure to go look at it. But for fun, I just took a look back to the uh, 2006 election when, when, when Sherrod Brown um, defeated an incumbent by the name of Mike DeWine for, for U.S. Senate. And it's basically 
the east side of Ohio is all blue for Sherrod Brown. And, and when we think about it, that, that, that's a lot of the, the area that Trump, to take Ohio from a 50-50 state to what was a Trump state, it was the movement of a lot of that traditionally blue area to red. So, but that's, that's the heartland for, on some of the issues that Andrew was just raising there that, 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 are, um, that are both Trump and Sherrod issues. So, so what campaign does Renacy um, stage to, to say, vote for me instead of the, the guy that used to have those same issues that you liked with Trump? I guess it's the question everybody's been trying to answer. Did they vote for Trump because they're Republicans or are they Republicans because they voted for Trump? You know, that sort of chicken or egg. It, it's interesting. There's, there's um, four counties in Ohio that, that voted to... A Democrat in every presidential election going back to 1972, Cuyahoga County, where we sit, and three counties in eastern Ohio. They, th- those eastern Ohio counties flipped flipped to Trump two years ago, but but in the in the um, election for the primary, they actually showed up in bigger numbers for for some of the Democrats this time. And Belmont and Monroe flipped back to more Democrat. One other kind of thread that's probably not going to be the biggest deal here, but I think we should probably touch on it is. When you compare this to the governor's race, you did have pretty much instant reconciliation between Mary Taylor and Mike DeWine. You know, she said, oh, we've got to, you know, be Republican going forward. Uh, You didn't have that, really, in Gibbons' concession speech. And it's probably worth pointing out that Gibbons filed a lawsuit against Renacy just days before the election that, you know, as of this recording, he still hasn't withdrawn or anything like that. I don't know if it's going to be sour grapes going forward and— or if some of the Gibbons supporters might just say, well, you know, to, to hell with Jim Renacy, we're not going to support him. I don't know how hardcore they're going to end up being that way. But there wasn't that reconciliation that you did have in the governor's race. So I don't know if it's as much of a scattered electorate as it would be in, say, the governor's race, but uh, just something to watch going forward. You're saying we don't have people talking like Ted, Ted Cruz later. Like I, I got a phone call for Ted Cruz that you have uh, uh, in one of these robocalls uh, with Ted Cruz voice saying, need to vote a Republican to support Trump's things. You don't expect to hear that from Gibbons here soon for Renacy. I don't know that it would necessarily help even if he did, but uh, I don't think so. So the, the phone would ring and say, hey, this is Mike Gibbons, and then they'd say, who? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, although I have to admit, I'm not sure I've heard more than four or five seconds of any of those that showed up on my uh, voicemail. The other primaries of some pretty big significance that happened on Tuesday involved the House members. Uh, I do think you saw some really fascinating results kind of there. You know, the 12th is probably the most high profile, but, uh, Rich, we noticed something interesting that in every one of the congressional races, the incumbent party had more votes than the non-incumbent party. Those people who drew the maps back in 2011 were pretty good, weren't they? And that even included non-contested races, if I'm not mistaken. Right. right. I mean, it, and, and it wasn't even close. If we're going to go back to the, the uh, turnout as a, as a barometer, none of them were even close. The 12 Republican uh, House districts had large bigger turnout on the Republican side, the four Democrat, a lot bigger turnout on the Democratic side. And Marsha Fudge and Joyce Beatty didn't have opponents, and they still outranked their uh, Republican, you know, their potential Republican opponents. So let's get into some of these races real quick. Obviously, the 12th is probably the most high profile just because everybody in the world decided they wanted to run for it. And Democrats saw that as a pickup opportunity. You had Troy Balderson win that Republican side, and Danny O'Connor went on the Democratic side. Uh, that is maybe not the result that Democrats were looking for, but I bet Republicans were pretty gleeful uh, that Balterson actually did pull that out. There was some there was some concern among the Republican establishment that Melanie Lenahan would win that. She's a more conservative kind of Jim Jordan type uh, Republican that 
a lot of people didn't want in the caucus. But with Balderson winning that, I mean, Republicans have to be feeling pretty good about that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, the story is the establishment won. Something that I kind of wish that I'd written about the congressional races, and I didn't, was that if you actually looked at what all these Republicans were saying, it was basically the same thing. It was all, I support Trump, I'm going to build the wall, I'm going to fight sanctuary cities, I'm going to stop drugs from flowing into our country, I'm going to support the president's agenda, blah, blah, blah. But then if you actually look at, like, uh, as far as a clearer way to actually delineate the candidates, those basically look who's funding them. And so in this case, you know, Troy Balderson got uh, support from Pat Tiberi, who dropped a lot of money on him. And Pat Tiberi was the congressman who held that seat for a while before that until he took a job with the Chamber of Commerce. So, like, he is really the business-friendly kind of Republican. We'll get to this and talk a little bit more in depth. But in the 16th congressional district, you had Anthony Gonzalez running as kind of, I guess, uh, his people actually don't like it if you suggest that he's not pro-Trump or something like that. So, But he got similar support from the Chamber of Commerce and that kind of thing, and he won his race too. So establishment wins primary. What do you guys think about generals? Establishment is important? These lines were drawn for an establishment. They weren't necessarily drawn for an outsider. They were drawn for an establishment Republican to win those races, or you know, an establishment Democrat You know, in the case of the other four districts. Uh, they're drawn that way, so I think it does give them the upper hand. You know, with the case in the case of the 12th district, and even in the 16th district, I think a little bit, you have more outside money that is willing to come here, and just more kind of high-profile donors nationwide who are willing to pour their money into that race, and it makes it a harder attack line. You know, it's easier for a Democrat to go into that race in a midterm and say so and so is fringe and. You know, they don't actually represent the district. They represent a minority of the district. It's a little harder when it's, you know, someone who, you know, it's a moderate. It's harder to run against moderates in a general election. That's just, you know, Ohio has proven that time and time again. I wonder on the 12th if uh, the Democrats might have a better shot at it being a special election in August as opposed to if Tiberi was just vacating his term at the end. Because this allows that outside money and the real focus to really become on a district because it's just one race at that time in August as opposed to if they were attempting to fill a, what was going to be a vacated seat in November. Well, there will also be some bragging rights with that. Not even bragging rights. I mean, there's a, there's a legitimate outcome, but it's a proving ground for Democrats and a proving ground for Republicans, uh, you know, especially in the state, but even nationwide. I mean, in the state, the, the 12th district is a place where Republicans can kind of say, hey, we're going to stop this, this blue wave that might be coming nationwide. It's not coming to Ohio. Uh, the Democrats, of course, they're going to want to win that race just to prove that they can win a race. That's they haven't, you know, it's been what four twelve split since basically twenty twelve. They want to show that they can make a pickup in the in a in a seat that they shouldn't win. Really, that's not drawn in their favor. They want to show, yeah, we can perform if we can outperform here. We can outperform statewide. We can outperform in a bunch of different races, and we can win where we're not supposed to heading into twenty twenty. What's bizarre to me is that seat's been vacant now for four or five months, and it's not going to be until August before a special election is going to put a replacement in. The other result we saw that was kind of surprising was the 16th congressional district up there. I think the Republican side kind of went uh, how you know a lot of people uh, thought it would. The Democratic side, though, that was a little more surprising. You know, kind of behind the scenes, Democrats really wanted Grant Goodrich to win that primary. They saw in Goodrich a Connor Lamb of sorts. There, Connor Lamb, the candidate who won the Pennsylvania district that was like plus 19, Donald Trump. He's a Democrat. Uh, instead, Susan Moran Palmer, a healthcare worker, uh, won that race. I think kind of surprising everyone, sort of upending what most people thought that uh, that district might turn out like. Now, granted, there were five people in there and there wasn't a lot of profile to any of them, but 
What does this mean going forward for Democrats since they look to Grant Goodrich as kind of their Connor Lamb? I mean, is that uh, does that put it out of play for him? So we had, we had Kyle Kondek on last week. He's a managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia. And he basically, the day after the election, upgraded that race again as being more friendly for Republicans. It was leans Republican. Now it's safe Republican. And it previously gone the other way, basically, when uh, the Connor Lamb election happened. So I think the big problem with Goodrich not making it through is that he actually showed that he was able to independently raise money. Uh, he's an economic development guy. Uh, he is himself kind of rich, and he runs in circles that he has the ability to tap into his sort of personal network. And then there will be opportunities for the Democrat there to to raise money anyways, because once you're the nominee, it's a different story. But regardless, Susan Moran Palmer's never run for office before. Uh, she threw a few ten thousand of thousands of dollars of her own money into her race. But so that's the real question, you know, is, is are they going to be able to mount enough of a challenge financially to basically uh, to compete in that district? Although I will say, you know, if you actually meet her, I know that she came in for an endorsement interview with a bunch of people at Cleveland.com. I mean, she's personally impressive. Uh, she's charismatic. She's relatable and stuff like that. And obviously, she was able to win that primary probably just by working the trail. And, and basically, people saw in her kind of what we saw in her. But still, I think there's a question about whether she'll be able to raise money because, uh, unfortunately, running for an office like that, you can you are physically incapable of knocking on enough doors to actually make a difference. It really does come down to raising money. It's probably also worth mentioning that uh, Condic and Sabato's out there mentioned that they might downgrade the Ohio 12th race for Democrats or upgrade it for Republicans, however you want to look at it as well. Uh, they're just kind of waiting to see how the dust settles a little bit, but they still think that's a bit of a pickup opportunity. With uh, Palmer, yeah, she she's interesting because when you talk about the electorate in 2018, at least what we've seen in other races— You've seen women voters voting more, and you've seen healthcare be the most important issue. And she's a woman healthcare worker, so I hate to play demographics too much, but it does, you know, there there does seem to be an opening there that it could work out. But does Anthony Gonzalez's Ohio State cred just kind of, you know, sweep everyone out since he's already got, you know, six digit figures in his campaign account? So I know that kind of in the lead up, uh, the National Democrats kind of saw maybe in Susan Moran Palmer something like Sherry Bustos, where it's kind of like the plain spoken woman, you know, I think they both have healthcare backgrounds and that kind of thing. So I do think that there's there's an opportunity there. But again, it will come down to whether she's able to have the resources to get her message out there. I look at a race like that where, where she, uh, Susan won the uh, primary, with, you know, five, six candidates there. And a certain number of people are going to hear campaigning and a certain number are not going to hear a lot about campaigning before they go in. And you go down the ballot and there's there's one name that's clearly a woman on there. And I always felt like, say, on judicial races in Cuyahoga County that candidates don't know a lot. You could almost pick the winners by saying, okay, there's two men and one woman in that race, so a woman will win. There's two women and, and one man. The man's going to have a chance. It doesn't have to move a lot of votes. It doesn't mean a lot of people look at it that way. But I got to believe that helped her pick up some votes, in, you know, in a five or six person race where, um, you know, the name of Susan there after, you know, other other uh, names that are all men. And I wonder, too, I don't know how much this moves it, but it'll, it's got to be worth some number of votes come general election time. Um, you look at the top of the ticket, choice between two men. Then you go to the Senate race, it's choice between two men. And then you get to this race. And for some people, that's the first opportunity for somebody to vote uh, for a woman if, if they want to have some diversity there or, or if they feel like there should be some women representing them. Now, it, a small issue maybe, but sometimes small issues can move up something a percent or two and can make a difference, right? 
elections have been won by just a few votes here and there. So who's to say that it does isn't enough to push her over the edge or anything like that? So the Republican race, again, kind of like stuck to sort of, I guess, the establishment winning, like we mentioned earlier. Um, you know, Anthony Gonzalez won 53-41 against Christina Hagan. Gonzalez had never run for office before. He's a former OSU football player. I kind of felt like going in that he was pretty, I mean, he's, he's a famous guy objectively, right? But if you looked at polling, which is very limited in this race, not a lot of people necessarily knew who he was off the bat. So it's not like he walks in and suddenly is like the big name in, in the race or anything like that. And then you had Christina Hagan, which one of my favorite things about this election cycle, she had yard signs and like maybe one third of them said Christina Hagan. The other two thirds of it said pro-Trump. Um, she really wrapped herself in Donald Trump. She hired a consultant who has some sort of, uh, I guess, connections with some of the figures in Trump world. She had diamond and silk campaigning for her. She had diamond and silk campaigning for her. She had the mooch, you know, um, her campaign manager was worked for the Trump campaign in 2016 in Ohio. Um, she really went all in with that strategy. And like we were saying before, uh, I don't think that, I think it's a mistake for a candidate to think that they can align themselves with Trump like that and just assume that it works because Donald Trump is a unique figure who spent decades becoming famous and, and reinforcing in people's minds who he is and, and what he's about. Uh, but it was an interesting test, though, to see to what degree that might work. I mean, obviously, you can make appeals to people who feel like it's important for the president's agenda to come through. But... On the other hand, you had Anthony Gonzalez, who uh, had more money, was putting out more communications, basically saying, hey, I support the president. So it becomes a little bit more difficult suddenly to try to say the other guy isn't going to be uh, you know, an ally to the president either. So it, it was interesting just to see uh, you know, Gonzalez make it through. And again, it's, it's just another point uh, for the establishment, whatever that means. <laughs> Tuesday wasn't just a big day for some of the candidates who were running. There was also a ballot initiative, Issue 1, regarding redistricting that passed. Rich, you, I mean, really were kind of instrumental in it being on the ballot at all. So, you know, you're the expert. Let's. Let, what's your take on that? My take is we're going to have a lot more interesting congressional races starting in 2022, if we can wait that long. I'll mark my calendar. <laughs> mark your calendar, 2022. Because we mentioned a little bit earlier, the, most of these congressional races, unless something gets completely out of whack in a particular race were determined when they drew the maps in 2011 because they were very good at designing 12 Republican districts and four Democratic districts to divide up the state like that. Bob Bennett talked about coming up with a map that would have 13 Republican districts and just three Democratic districts, but then he acknowledged that that's pushing a little bit too much. You start cutting the margins a little thin, you could end up losing your seats, not making them so safe. So they settled on a map with 12 Republican and four, four Democrats it entirely predictable. The same seats have been Republican each time. Same seats have been Democrat each time. Two years ago, the closest race was decided by 20 points. So there is no drama at general election time unless we you know, really get into something unusual with these open seats this year. But now that this, this change going forward, it won't affect it until after the next census in 2020. It's not a foolproof system, but a lot better than what was in place before that's going to require that both parties kind of buy into the maps and and uh, and there's some restrictions on how you can split counties. This one district that goes from from uh, Parma to to Toledo can't exist under the new rules. It's the Lake no Curry more monster. snake on the lake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, so it'll it should make for more competitive races uh, next time around. How many more? Remember, we're still going to have politicians 
in charge of drawing the maps, not not people that aren't elected officials, people that are in the same rooms that that uh, with the incumbents that don't want to lose their seats and so forth. So politicians are still going to have their hands on it. But I guess the way one way I describe this new new system going forward is that the politicians are still going to have their hands in the cookie jar. But grandma is now looking around the corner to make sure any one person doesn't get too much. You did have both parties come out in support of it. Uh, really, I mean, especially the Republicans at kind of the last minute when they decided, oh, hey, we're, we have to do this because somebody's going to throw it on the ballot. Is this a thing where we're going to have this done this year and then in another decade or two, there's going to be another redistricting reform because it ends up, you know, working to the benefit of the parties who said that this is what they wanted? The people that aren't entrenched in Democratic Republican politics, but if you are just a fair observer, would want this to be just step one in the process. It's a lot better than existed before, which was essentially no rules. They could draw the districts any way they wanted to as long as they were the same size and didn't blatantly uh, discriminate against a minority group. Now that there's a lot of rules in place, but, but it's, still, you know, it's still done by the politicians. So I think the people that are really committed to reform think, look at this as a step one. But as the people know that have been committed to reform, this has been tr- attempted for 30, 40 years. It just got to this point. And what took it to get to this point is that the Republicans were, the party, I believe, was was uh, afraid that something that they didn't want, which was more reform, was going to end up on the ballot. So they came to an agreement with something that they would uh, support technically. Um, both both the Democrat and Republican parties um, supported uh, the, the, the issue one, but uh, at least on the last campaign finance fouling, I didn't see any money in there from the Republican Party. Why don't you walk our audience through it? How How is it going to work exactly? How is it going to be different from the way people used to draw districts? So real quick on the on the way it was done the last several times was that the legislature could pass a district map signed by the governor. It becomes law. There was some threat that, that you could referendum it, but in reality, the last time it was attempted to do that, the referendum being by circulating petitions saying this is unfair, they just didn't have the time or money to do it. So in practicality, you really couldn't, even though technically you could. And the last two times that the maps were drawn, uh, Republicans were in control of the state house and the governor's office. So it wasn't bipartisan in any way, except that they did get some Democratic votes by satisfying some people in certain areas. But in the big picture, in reality, uh, they were negotiating from a point of Republican control. So they could do the maps the way they wanted to. Now, going forward, uh, what's interesting is that uh, if the legislature is going to pass a new map, it needs at least half of the votes from the minority party. So if the Democrats are in charge, at least half the Republicans have to vote yes and, and vice versa. If that doesn't happen, this gets a little complicated here for, for a podcast, but it goes to another separate commission. But again, there has to be support from both parties. If that doesn't happen, eventually it could end up back in the legislature with without bipartisan support, a straight vote. But then that map only can count for four years. And there's a whole bunch of more rules to make sure that you're not cheating one party or the other when you do it. So in, in reality, you're going to have to have buy-in from politicians on both sides of the aisle, and it's going to have to be significant buy-in. Just not like now, you could maybe get four or five people to go along with it if you did something to make, make your area of the state um, good, good for your party. And then on the other side, uh, too, we've got, we got counties like Cuyahoga County is split four ways now, but no one district stays within Cuyahoga County. Uh, they just basically fan out. Four, Summit County split four ways. I want to say Lorraine County and Portage County are split three ways. There's going to be severe limits on splits. No county could be split more than three ways. And the number, there's like some, 65 counties cannot be split at all. And I think there's a lot more now. And significantly for the people of Cleveland and, and Cincinnati falls into this boat too. And, and to some extent, Columbus, all of Cleveland will be in one congressional district. Cleveland and some suburbs are going to be in a district right now. It's split. So 
and same way with Cincinnati. Now Columbus is too big for a district, so it's not nece- you know it's not going to necessarily be the case there. But there will not be a split for for the city of Cleveland. And I'm interested, honestly, what that means for the incumbents there. I mean, I look at Marsha Fudge, who uh, represents the east side of Cleveland, you know, some downtown Cleveland, some east side suburbs, and suddenly if she has to win. Uh, districts on the west side. I mean, it, the the politics are different over there. I mean, you, you'd expect just some of these Democratic primaries are going to be a little bit more competitive uh, instead of, you know, like like we have in Cleveland right now where it's split basically between two different districts. You would think that all primaries would actually be a little more competitive too because, I mean, even some of those Republican districts are going to have, uh, you know, running down in, say, Cincinnati where they've kind of split it up there, Shabbat's district and everything. And now they're going to have these cities all contained in one that does make a very interesting kind of local pol- uh, political story for basically everywhere in the state. In Cincinnati, which the city itself is a Democratic city in terms of looking at the vote, they're splitting the two districts now, and two Republican congressmen represent Cincinnati. And I, I find that hard to believe that's going to be the case now that Cincinnati's going to be the nearly all of one district next time around. What does that mean for, say, a, um, a Marcy Captor who has a snake on the lake? I mean, is she going to have a more difficult election this next time around? I guess I have difficulty believing that that whatever way you draw the district, if if uh, Lucas County is kept mostly whole, where she, Toledo, um, that the Marcy Captor, since she's been around since shortly after Abraham Lincoln left office, uh, she's the longest serving uh, woman member of Congress, and and the longest serving member of Congress period, man or woman from Ohio. Incumbency matters a lot. I, I have difficulty thinking that uh, because of this, that that Marcy Captor would be in danger. What districts have you looked at that you see? could become just more competitive and maybe there's incumbents there who you know have to worry the next time around i think it's difficult to point at any one district since these districts mean nothing now they're just drawn on a map by the people that wanted to draw them a certain way but go back to what i said about cincinnati you got two congressmen from cincinnati now and cincinnati has to have its own district plus some suburban area so somebody's out without well technically you don't have to live in within your district to run but 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 it's hard to believe that you're going to have two Republicans representing areas of Hamilton County next time, uh, the way Hamilton County's gone, unless the politics really change in the next five or six years. And it's going to be interesting to see how they draw the district in Columbus, because Columbus is too big for one district, so they're allowed to maybe use some outside areas. And Joyce Beatty doesn't technically live in Columbus. She's in a township just outside, but um, I'm sure that's where the politicians, if she's still in Congress and, and, and Stivers is in Congress, that they'll take care of that, because Stivers is just a few hundred feet outside of Columbus himself in, in Upper Arlington. I would think that um, it, it keeps it fairly safe for the for the Democrats in, in the Youngstown and Akron area just when you start adding up the numbers and so forth. But but overall, um, under this current map, Republicans have gotten roughly, I want to say, 55% of the vote and head-to-head vote, and they've translated that to 75% of the seats. It's going to be real difficult to that type of trend continue. So I would expect no matter what happens politically, even if Ohio becomes more Republican, if this trend that we saw with the Trump election continues and Ohio's even more Republican by 2022, it's going to be very difficult to, for the Republicans to hold on 75% of the seats. And well, the other thing is we don't know. It looks like Ohio will probably have 15 seats next time too, instead of 16 so currently. Someone will be the odd man or odd woman out, I guess. The, the, I just wanted to say the Washington Post, uh, their the fix blog, uh, the headline was Ohio voters just made gerrymandering more trouble than it's worth. Uh, I guess the takeaway that the author was trying to kind of convey anyways was that, yeah, they could still gerrymander, but they might get sued and they'd have to do X, Y, and Z to get there. So I don't know. I mean, gerrymandering is worth a lot. So I still think that if they really want to do it, they probably will. But what do you think, Rich? 
Who, who's the author on that story? Her name's Amber Phillips. I was just curious because there was quite a uh, Twitter feed uh, going on the, the last um, thread, uh, the last few days from election night on from another person at the Washington Post, not the person you named it, saying, see, even Cleveland.com says this doesn't fix it. And they, they cited one of the stories, which, which I basically said what we've said already here today is it doesn't completely fix it. But uh, I don't know. I, I, the other thing is, too, we, we were waiting on Supreme Court cases on, on gerrymandering. So this way, Ohio did grab control of the way they've the way they fixed it, then it would probably be more difficult to contest it now that you've established these rules that say it's difficult to take a case to the court saying that you were really uh, violating a First Amendment right against a Democratic Republican. That's the gist of a case in Maryland uh, because of the way you drew the districts if you required that both, both parties bought into it to begin with, and that's what this requires. All right, before we go, uh, let's get some parting thoughts from everybody. What is everybody thinking the most interesting storyline, most interesting races going into the general election? Andrew, let's start with you. Well, I, for one, am looking for uh, Mike DeWine and, and Richard Cordray are just two extremely charismatic individuals, and I just assume it's going to be crazy, and those guys are just going to say, no, I mean, it's going to be really boring, let's be honest. But um, it will be really interesting to kind of see how much attention Ohio gets, to what degree they're able to make that race national. And like we've been talking about this entire podcast, uh, whether we can find data points in that that basically kind of shed some light on where Ohio is going politically if we're becoming a red state like if we can expect the state to be in play in 2020 you know that kind of stuff rich what will matter more the names Brown and Renacy and Cordray and DeWine or Donald Trump another thing uh, at this point I don't necessarily see the Senate race being super competitive I mean at least just at this phase of the race obviously I do think things will tighten um, so I guess you know who knows what the future is going to bring but an interesting storyline to follow is whether Sherrod Brown will be able to, uh, Rich was talking about the map showing how in 2006 he won a bunch, wide swath of East Ohio, which then was really uh, definitive in helping turn the election for Trump in 2016. So it's basically, can he bring those voters back into the fold? And then I guess if he can, when does the Sherrod for President 2020s talk start? I know it's, uh, we in the media get accused of kind of always looking towards like every election, but the one that's currently happening or whatever. But uh, you can't really get away from that. I mean, he was on the short list to be vice president in 2016. Um, even, uh, you know, Ted Strickland, when he was governor of Ohio, was on the short list to be vice president in 2008. So I think the Democrats are in search of that. The Democrat who can appeal to blue collar voters in the heartland kind of thing. It's like the white whale, you know. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that'll be that'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. And it's probably one of the reasons that Trump is so interested in Ohio and keeps coming back here and uh, really has a vested interest in making sure that Sherrod loses because I'm sure that he does not want to run against him in 2020 or at least would like to take out a potential opponent. Maybe he doesn't care who he runs against, but if you can take an opponent out early before you have to run against him, why not, right? Yeah, that's not smart. Being the data geek that I am, I want to know whether Ohio is still a swing state. You know, everybody knows it's since been... It's commonly known that it goes all the way back to 1960, since the last time Ohio went against this nation in a presidential vote. It's happened every time Ohio goes, the presidential election goes. Four elections leading up to this last presidential election, the votes, if you add them all together, are nearly even. Then Trump kind of blew it out of the water, making it look more red. If the Democrats win this November, does that mean that we're still a swing state? Or if the Republicans win really big, is Ohio no longer a swing state? I would have to say that uh, the most interesting thing going forward is what role does John Kasich actually play in these elections? Does he play any role for that matter? He declined to endorse DeWine after his victory uh, just on Wednesday because of the Medicaid expansion and all that. Does he actually play an active role in sort of his who his successor is or does he go 
kind of hands off as he flirts with a possible presidential run. Yeah, it's weird. Um, he doesn't really seem to have a lot of influence in the Republican scene anymore. But, you know, he's popular enough that I think if he wanted to try to make a difference on something, he could. But, you know, I guess the question is, is he going to be too busy in New Hampshire to really do that? So, well, the foliage there is nice, especially in the fall. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in today to this election special of Ohio Matters. Rich, thank you for being the special guest. We hope you'll come back. OK, anytime. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. 